Previously on David, the greatest king, we saw that Saul was the current king in his late 50s and no longer a leader when it comes to fighting. No one, not even the tall, strong king, was willing to challenge Goliath, the giant Philistine who mocked God and threatened the Israelite nation. Young David, anointed by the prophet, but still a shepherd boy at this point, hears the giant speaking as he is delivering bread and cheese for his older brothers. David whips up the troops and tells King Saul he will slay the giant. Saul gives him his armor so he can fight the battle. When David tries it on, he can hardly walk, so he removes the armor, picks up a few small, smooth stones from the creek, and confronts the giant. He uses a sling and knocks the giant down with just one rock. We talked about how the example of David is not necessarily one we would emulate today. Let's not miss the point of the story. David confronts his enemy and kills him. Whereas Jesus commands us, love your enemies, do good to them that hate you. So we don't learn from David how to treat our enemies. Instead, we saw how important it is to slow down to take notice of the details of what is happening. In the Bible, we are in the ninth book, 1 Samuel, but this is only our fifth major character. There's Abraham, who takes up about ten chapters of Genesis, Joseph, who takes up another ten, then Moses, whose story is throughout Exodus. There are laws and short stories in Deuteronomy and Leviticus. Joshua is a major character that is only in ten chapters of a book that has his name in it. The judges come and go, including the prophet Samuel. Then we hear how Saul is made king. And finally, we arrive at the story of David, which takes up the next two books of the Bible. The next 40 chapters. Plus, the stories uh, are repeated in another book in 1 Chronicles. The story of David is the first time where we really get to see the lifetime of one person. And what do we find? We find both good and bad, right and wrong, a mixed bag of things we should emulate and other things we should steer clear of. With either, though, we learn and grow because of both positive and negative examples. So today, we dive into what I would describe as a positive example of how we can live our lives, even though it's probably the opposite of what we ourselves would like to do. So here it is, 1 Samuel Chapter 18, verses 6 through 16, David has defeated Goliath, and Israel has won a spectacular victory over the Philistines. Then this. Lisa? As they were coming home, when David returned from killing the Philistine, the women came out of all the towns of Israel singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines, with songs of joy, and with musical instruments. And the women sang to one another as they made merry. Saul has killed his thousands, and David his tens of thousands. Saul was very angry for this, saying displeased him. He said, They have ascribed to David tens of thousands, and to me they have ascribed thousands. What more can he have but the kingdom? So Saul eyed David from that day on. The next day, an evil spirit from God rushed upon Saul, and he raved within his house while David was playing the lyre, as he did day by day. Saul had his spear in his hand, and Saul threw the spear, for he thought, I will pin David to the wall, 
but David eluded him twice. Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with him, but had departed from Saul. So Saul removed him from his presence and made him a commander of a thousand. And David marched out and came in, leading the army. David had success in all his undertakings, for the Lord was with him. When Saul saw that he had great success, he stood in awe of him. But all Israel and Judah loved David, for it was he who marched out and came in, leading them. And from Psalm 34, verse 19, Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord rescues them from them all. The word of the Lord for the people of God. Thanks Thanks be to God. I invite you to join me in our prayer of preparation. May the words of my heart, uh, my mouth, and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. Amen. So even though David has won a spectacular victory for the king, King Saul is afraid of David. He is perhaps jealous and puts David in charge of his army. We'll see later why that is, but perhaps most stunning of all is this one little line in verse 12. Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with him, but had departed Saul. Saul had been anointed by the prophet Samuel. He was God's chosen one. Yet, here we see that Saul is rejected by God, and God's spirit has left him. Why? Why did God abandon Saul? With the little bit that we've seen from both Saul and David, we know that neither is perfect. Neither is the ideal picture of how we live our lives before God. David will eventually cheat on his wife and murder a man, among other things. Yet God has left Saul and remains with David. Why? Why does God stick with David but reject Saul? It's a mystery I mentioned last week, and we want to understand why David will be king and Saul will not. It's an answer that doesn't just concern ancient history either. It matters to us in many ways. We are just like David. We have skills, we have gifts and talents that can make a difference in this world. And we also make mistakes and sin, sometimes hurting people we love. More than that, we have people in our lives that are just like Saul. And we need to navigate those relationships. We need to do the right thing. To figure this out, why God rejected Saul, and what to do with people like Saul, we are going to go through several chapters of the Bible, starting back uh, at the point where it's just before David is anointed to be king. Saul has been chosen by God. When the prophet Samuel went to anoint Saul, he was hiding in the luggage of all the people that had come to see the ceremony. Other than his looks, he was not exactly king material, But God has worked through people far less qualified, and he is anointed. After just a few years of leading the people, they are in the midst of a battle against the Amalekites. In Judaism, Amalekites were the arch enemy of Israel and a symbol of evil. So Saul is leading Israel against this other nation, and he is told by the prophet Samuel in 1 Samuel 15, Kill all the Amalekites. Don't spare a single one. So Saul gathers a huge army, attacks and defeats the Amalekites, and has their king. He's captured him. He has, quote, spared Agag and the best of their sheep and of the cattle and of the fatlings and the lambs and all that was valuable. 
when he's confronted by Samuel about this, he says, the people spared the best of the sheep and the cattle to sacrifice to the Lord your God. Samuel, the prophet, is angry and says, surely to obey is better than sacrifice. He's telling Saul, you didn't choose right. You didn't pick the right option. But it's more than that. David chose wrong plenty of times. Choosing the wrong thing isn't enough to disqualify you. Some have pointed to Saul saying in verse 21, I brought these things to sacrifice to your God, thinking Saul has not internalized following the God of Israel. But that doesn't really make much sense. There are plenty of places right in that chapter where he calls God, my God. What strikes me as more likely, though, is found in verse 12. Saul set up a monument for himself. He is celebrating himself, not God. After Samuel expresses his anger, Saul is trying to repent. He's trying to make up for his mistake. And listen carefully to what he says. I have sinned, for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words, because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Who did Saul blame? Whose fault is his sin? It's the people's fault, right? They were too scary for Saul. Let's keep going. Now, therefore, I pray, pardon my sin and return with me so that I may worship the Lord. Saul is trying to save face. He needs the support of the prophet to keep everything going right in his kingdom. Is he repenting? Is he sorry for the wrong he has done? Is he repairing a broken relationship between him and God, between him and Samuel? Or is he doing what is politically expedient for him. It looks to me like it's the latter. Saul won't just confess his sin. He won't just admit he's wrong. Instead, he's too concerned about his kingdom, his monument, his reputation. That's why he's so mad about the people singing Saul uh, has his thousands and David has his ten thousands. He's arrogant. We'll look more at how David responds to being caught in the middle of sin later in the series. But for now, let's look at David's response to things happening with him and Saul. Maybe we can pick up on a difference between them by looking at David. Last week, we heard how Saul had already promised David he would give him one of his daughters if he defeated Goliath. And what happens? 1 Samuel eighteen seventeen, David is supposed to marry Merab. What a pretty name, isn't it? Uh, That's Saul's oldest daughter, whose name means abundance or maybe agent of greatness. Seems a little boastful to me, but David is supposed to marry her, marry her when suddenly Saul pulls the rug out from underneath him. Verse 19, at the time when Saul's daughter Merab should have been given to David, she was given to Adriel, the Mehalathite, as a wife. Ah, that dastardly king, he promised David a wife and stole it from him. This section is also where we learn why it is that Saul put David in charge of his army. It wasn't because he respected David or because he knew he was a great commander. He did it because he wanted the Philistines to kill him. He said, I will not raise a hand against him. Let the Philistines deal with him. Saul is this tricky, devious king. Remember this point because it comes up again years later, and we'll get to it in the series. Then things 
get a little tougher for Saul. One of his daughters, Michal, or Michal, which might mean brook or stream, loved David. She fell for him. But Saul says, you know, maybe I can use this against David. So when things are set, David says, I'm a poor man. I can't afford the bride price. How could I ever pay for a princess, for a king's daughter? And Saul says, it's okay. Just fight 100 Philistines and bring proof you killed them. David does it. And then the scripture says Saul was David's enemy from that time forward. That was the final straw. Saul set a trap for David and David won. And verse 30 says David's fame only increased from this. So Saul is bitter. He is raging that his plan backfired and that David is becoming more popular. He is losing his kingdom to this poor shepherd boy. It only gets worse as the story continues. Apparently out of jealousy, scripture says Saul tries to kill David. Then a son of Saul, Jonathan, who has a really good positive relationship with David and and has even sworn to serve David when David becomes king, talks to his father about David. Jonathan says to his father, Saul, hey, David's never done anything wrong. He does everything you tell him to do. Why are you trying to kill him? So Saul relents. He tells his son, you're right. I promise I won't try and kill David anymore. Then a few verses later, he's right back at it. Saul breaks his oath and tries to murder David. David is saved by his wife, Michal. She puts a small statue and some hay in bed to look like hair. Uh, You know all those silly tropes about someone putting a dummy in bed so people think you're sleeping? It starts right here. It's actually in the Bible. And David is saved by his smitten wife. Later, after at least several weeks or maybe months, if not years, David comes back to Saul's court. He's still not sure if he is safe or not, so he stays away during the dinners to see if Saul will notice and if he's upset about it or if he's okay. After two days, Saul flips out and screams at his son Jonathan and calls his mother terrible, nasty names, all because David didn't come to dinner. So David leaves again, and this time he stays far away. He is out in the wilderness, in the desert parts of Israel. Saul, again, upset with David without much reason. He's been in the desert, minding his own business this whole time. He comes pursuing David and tries to kill him. He is so close to finding David that Saul's soldiers stop marching To make a pit stop, Saul walks into a cave to relieve himself. And who is in there deeper in the cave? It's David and all his men. David sneaks up near where Saul is. And when his coat is laying on the ground, David cuts just the corner of it off. After Saul gathers his things and takes off marching again, uh, what does David do? He gets up high on a cliff away from Saul and shouts out to him. He tells him, Look, I was so close to you, I could have killed you. But did I? No, of course not. You are the Lord's anointed. See, David took Saul's position as the anointed king seriously, even if Saul wasn't worthy of the position. Even if David was unsure of what it meant that both of them were in fact anointed to be king he still wouldn't presume to have a superior claim 
to Saul or to do any harm to him. Saul admits it. I was wrong. I'll I'll stop pursuing you. So he heads back to his palace. Then perhaps a few years later, Saul comes out again hunting David. A similar thing happens. David finds Saul's camp in the middle of the night. He sneaks up through the whole camp, gets to the very center where King Saul is, and takes his spear and water jug. He does the same thing as before. He goes to another hill, shouts over to Saul and says, Look, I could have harmed you, but I didn't. And Saul again admits that he was wrong to pursue David. David says, As your life was precious today in my sight, so may my life be precious in the sight of the Lord. David approaches Saul with total humility. He would not hurt him. He would not disparage him. Even as the scriptures say Saul was mad. He had an evil spirit in him. Saul chucked spears at him, and David responds with humility and patience. I don't know about you, but I am stunned by David's response. I am amazed that David was so level-headed in responding to someone who seems clearly unhinged and bent on David's destruction. And there, I think, we see why David was called a man after God's own heart. Why David was accepted and Saul was rejected. David, even when he sinned and had impure motives and hurt other people, had a kind of patience and humility that was amazing. I think that's the kind of response God is looking for from all of us. Now, don't get me wrong. I know there are times when people harm us and the right response is not patience and humility. If you are in an abusive relationship or in an abusive marriage, I'm not sure God would even call that a marriage. Abuse is not acceptable, and telling someone to stick it out is often the wrong advice. But when someone is going through an incredibly difficult time, and they can have patience and humility that keeps them in control of themselves and ready to do what is right, no matter what others around them may be doing, that is truly commendable. A few years ago, Uh, Ellen Stratton gave me a book called The Toughest People to Love by Chuck DeGrote. In it, Chuck talks about how we can understand and love the difficult people in our lives, including ourselves. The author shares how people can have personality disorders and addictions and loving relationships can turn ugly. On the cover of the book is a red balloon seemingly about to pop on an uneven bed of nails. That, to me, is a perfect picture for how we may feel around these tough people. If you've ever struggled in a relationship, if you've ever felt the way I imagine David did with a lunatic throwing things at him, breaking promises and calling him names, there are a few key things we can do, similar to David's patience and humility. The author of The Toughest People to Love recommends growth in discipline. Not discipline as in punishment, but discipline as a spiritual exercise. He says, if we are going to have the right response to people out there, even the people who clearly are in the wrong, we need to look at ourselves first. Chuck uses circles of trust and recommends asking two or three of the closest people to you, how do you experience me? Their, their answers may surprise you and help you do some real soul searching he recommends prayer and worship and 
solitude, all ways to reconnect with ourselves and to connect with God. One final discipline is the freedom to break the rules. You may lead a hectic life, one that a weekly Sabbath or sabbatical or big lifestyle change just can't handle. But what about just breaking one rule a day? Did you know Ed Koch, the former mayor of New York, used to take a nap every day in the afternoon? He learned it from Albert Einstein, Winston Churchill, and Harry Truman. It doesn't seem like it lines up with being a productive human, yet we know when we are well-rested, we are better for others. Once a pastor was encouraged to break the rules, and for him that meant abandoning his study time and going to see a movie. He didn't want to do it, didn't even tell his wife about his rule-breaking. But after seeing an afternoon movie called The Help, he sobbed for five minutes, seeing racial injustice and relational violence clearly for the first time in his life. The gospel met him there in that movie theater as he exercised the discipline of freedom to break the rules. These are just a few suggestions. You may have noticed how haphazard they are. That's because the thing that builds us up spiritually and the discipline that we need in our lives is different for everyone. I need to study the scriptures deeply. I need to walk in the woods. These are disciplines that keep me balanced and healthy, ready to respond to others like David did to Saul with humility, with regard, with patience. You can do that too, but it takes discipline. One last story. Julie had the ultimate challenge in loving a tough person. She had a baby. She was a graduate student working on a Ph.D., and she met with the famed Eugene Peterson, the pastor who wrote the paraphrase Bible, The Message. Julie told him how it seemed like work was always interrupted by her children needing to be fed and changed, read to, and more. She begged him for a spiritual discipline, that would solve her problems. Eugene simply asked, is there anything you are doing in a disciplined way already? And she said, yes, her newborn daughter, Iona, needed to be nursed. He patted her hand and said, Julie, there is your spiritual discipline. Now pay attention to what you are already doing. Be present. And in a moment, she saw it. She saw her family as getting in the way of her godly life, when in fact, that was the very place God was trying to meet her. Maybe that's true for you too. Maybe that person causing such turmoil in your life, your own personal King Saul, is really a gift in the darkness. David may well have said this quote from Psalm 139, Lord, Even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day, for darkness is as light to you. May God transform our darkness to light. Amen.